It's a bit of a cliffhanger. And if you look at your Bibles, you'll likely see um, some kind of a note, maybe in brackets or square brackets, or maybe the whole section's in square brackets. Or in some Bibles, verses 9 to 20 are in a footnote. And that's because if you look into this, the, uh, the earliest manuscripts, uh, some of them don't actually have verses 9 to 20. And actually, uh, if you study the style, if you study the content, it seems uh, a little bit different than how Mark's been writing the rest of the book. And this really isn't a big deal. It's not really a cause for alarm because everything that's included in verses 9 to 20, uh, it's all content that we read also in the other Gospels and in the book of Acts, and it's all God's Word. But it's just worth noting because your Bibles mention it. And because if that is where Mark originally finished uh, with verse 8, and many scholars, uh, most conservative scholars, actually believe this is where he first ended it, and then someone else added a little appendix summarizing events afterwards, then what we're about to read is quite the cliffhanger. And we'll see why that's important as we uh, listen to this word uh, in the sermon as well. If you have any more questions about that, feel free to ask me later. Like I said, it's not really a big deal. Lots of people treat that as uh, the ending of Mark and everything that's included in that part. It's elsewhere in the Bible as well. But anyway, let's read verses 1 to 8 together. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So far, our reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, have you ever made plans only to have them completely fall apart? Recently, me and my family, we had some plans for a nice day doing some sightseeing. And on our way out, it started pouring down rain. It was very rare around here, I've heard. And then, as we were driving in the rain, I hit a pothole and blew my tire and bent the rim on my car too. And so all of our plans, they came to nothing. We are just left sitting on the side of the road asking, now what? Now that's just a small example of plans uh, being ruined. Uh, another uh, story I know of, a bigger example, is of a man who had big plans. He had been uh, dating his girlfriend for quite some time, and they'd spoken a lot about marriage. And well, unbeknownst to her, he had bought an engagement ring, and he had made some plans for a surprise honeymoon as well, uh, some non-refundable plans, actually. And as he was about to propose... She ended up breaking up with him. He was left asking, now what? Or maybe the biggest one that some of us have experienced is when one day we get a phone call. 
We hear that a loved one is sick, or a loved one has died. Whatever we had planned, it's ruined. We're just left asking, now what? Sometimes something happens that just changes everything. And brothers and sisters, Easter Sunday is one of those things. Christ's resurrection changes everything. And the question we should now be asking is, now what? We'll explore this in three parts. First, we'll see Jesus was crucified. Now what? Secondly, Jesus was raised. Now what? Then finally, Jesus is alive. Now what? So imagine for a moment what Jesus' followers were thinking the morning of this first ever Easter Sunday. These people had been following Jesus for years. Jesus had taught them. He had healed some of them. They had given their time and their energy, probably given up money to follow him and learn at his feet. And these people, they loved Jesus, and they were convinced that everything he said was true. They were convinced, ultimately, that he was the Messiah, the one promised from long ago in the Old Testament, the one that God said he, he would send to crush the head of the serpent, to save them from their sins, to bring them back to God. But now, this first Easter Sunday, Jesus is gone. Jesus is dead. He died horribly. Many of these people, they, they had watched it happen. Their dear friend and teacher was gone. Worse, their hopes and dreams of salvation in this Messiah, the one that God had finally sent to save them, they were gone. They were left asking, now what? And in our text, we see that three women decided what they were going to do next. In verse 1, we read that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, early on Sunday morning, they took spices that they had bought so they might go and anoint Jesus' body. They were going to go to Jesus' tomb. They were going to just pay their final respects. It's worth noting they didn't have to do this. As we already read, Jesus had been buried. We can read in uh, the book of John, it's expanded on, Joseph of Arimathea, he had taken the body off the cross. These women had seen the nails pried from Jesus' hands and feet. They'd seen his stiff arms brought down to rest at his sides. And then Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped him in linen grave clothes with 75 pounds worth of spices, we read in John. And they laid Jesus in a tomb. And we read in Mark that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, they were there. They saw that Jesus was buried. He was laid in the grave. And yet as soon as they could, these women came Sunday morning with even more spices. Not because they had to, just because they wanted to. They really loved Jesus. They really cared for him. And they wanted to take advantage of their last chance to honor him. What else could they do? Actually, we need to ask, could they even do this one small thing? Because see what the women were wondering on the way to the tomb. We read in verse 3. They were asking themselves, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They didn't even know how they were going to get to Jesus, if they could at all. But these women wanted to try. And it's a really interesting thing that they had no one to move the stone, isn't it? If only Jesus had some really committed followers, some strong young men, 
Maybe some who used to be physical laborers, maybe some who used to be fishermen or something. Maybe if there were 12 of them or at least 11, they could help. Looking at this story, it's strange. Where on earth are the disciples? Where are the men that Jesus had called specifically, the group he had handpicked, the ones he had taught personally, the ones who had heard and seen so many miracles from Jesus? Where were they when Jesus needed to be buried? Instead, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to courageously ask for and take his body. And now, Sunday morning, the third day, when Jesus had actually told them he would rise, where are the disciples? They're in hiding. They were scared when Jesus was arrested, and they're still scared now, scared of being seen anywhere near Jesus for fear of the Roman and Jewish authorities. And yet these brave women head out. They're going just around dawn to a graveyard. This is a terrifying enough thing to imagine. It would have been intimidating just to do that. But not to mention, they were going to show honor to someone that the Jewish leaders had hated and had killed. Someone that the Romans themselves had executed. This was a brave act of love for Jesus. Even though at this point, it would have seemed useless. Especially because at this point, honestly, it seems like Jesus was either a fraud or a failure. It's important to remember that other people had claimed to be the Messiah before Jesus and after Jesus. Most of them had ended up just like this. They ended up killed, often executed. And then their followers just faded away. And yet these women loved Jesus. They had spent time with him. They, they cared about him. And so they want to go honor his dead, decaying body one more time. What could they do now but mourn? Mourn their friend, first of all but also mourn their Savior. The one who they really believed was from God himself. The one who would bring them back to God. The one to save them from the sin and Satan and death. They had to face here their friend was gone, but more than that, the one that they thought was their Savior. The one they truly believed was the Son of God. Their only hope. Now he's dead as well. It seems that the Son of God had failed. And Paul explains the hopelessness of this situation so well in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus is a fraud, we're doomed. His miracles and his teachings are useless. If Jesus wasn't able to save us, then who is able to save us? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 13, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen in sleep in Christ are lost. Jesus was our hope to get back to God. He was the one who could bring us there. He was the one who could save us from our sins by taking the payment himself. If he is truly dead and remains dead, then we still have to pay the price for our sins. If Jesus was just a good man, then we're doomed. He could not complete the payment. He died, and we're next. But the story goes on. Mark says in verse 4, Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. They went inside, and Jesus was gone. Jesus was raised. Now what? Our second point. 
Brothers and sisters, I, I've been to a lot of funerals, uh, a lot more than I'd like, and I'm sure many of you are with me on that. Many of you have been too. And one thing I can tell you for sure is when someone is dead, when you take them and you put them in the grave, it's done. It's over. They're not coming out. They're gone. Death is final. Death just, just takes and takes and takes. And once it does, it never gives back. But here, finally, there's a Savior. Finally, someone can defeat even death. Finally, someone can reverse sin and all its effects. This is the day when everything changed. They went to the tomb, and Jesus, who had been buried there, who was dead there, was gone. Jesus had died, like so many of our friends and family members. But unlike them, Jesus, our Savior, he walked out victorious. And this would have been shocking. It would have been almost unbelievable. Leading up to this passage, Mark tells us at least four times in his gospel that Jesus explicitly told the disciples he would die and rise again. But they didn't really get it. They didn't really grasp it, and you can understand why. They, they, they thought Jesus must have been talking in a parable, or he must have meant something else. They thought there was no way he could have been, meant that he would actually die and raise again. They couldn't believe it. It just couldn't be true. But yet, thankfully, God allowed these women to see on that first Easter Sunday that Jesus meant exactly what he said. He was the Savior who could beat death. Sin and Satan and death. So God rolled away the stone so they could walk in. And more than that, God sent a messenger to explain exactly what was going on. Inside the tomb, there waiting for them, was a young man in a white robe. And they will remember, he was sitting there on the right side. And he was an angel, of course. The other Gospels tell us specifically. And this angel told them, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Imagine the two Marys looking, remembering that they had just been there a couple days before. They saw Jesus dead. They saw his body wrapped up. And now they look and see only his grave clothes lying on the ground, his head covering neatly folded off in the corner. This changes everything. Without a doubt, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one sent by God. And he's a more marvelous, a more beautiful, a more remarkable Savior than we ever could have imagined. He is the one who can save us from sin and its effects. He is the one who can reverse evil. He can make all things new. And he's so much more powerful than anyone could have pictured. Jesus shows himself to be a powerful Savior throughout his life. But now we see in a new way how powerful he is. Not even death could constrain him. Not even the grave could hold him in. Death is our greatest enemy. Death defeats us all. No contest. No talking back. What could we say? Not so for Christ. Our Savior went down to death in a horrible public fashion. And he came out the other side victorious. It's someone who can de defeat death and judgment and bring us and our loved ones with him back to God. This is a Savior like no other, a Messiah like no other. 
Like I said, there were other false messiahs who had come before. False messiahs who came afterwards. False messiahs who had been killed. And when they were killed, their followers scattered. Their legacies died out. But not this Savior. After this, Christianity spread everywhere. Christ's followers didn't scatter. They grew more bold. They proclaimed everywhere what they had witnessed, what Jesus had said, what he had done. They even proclaimed it unto death. And before long, this gospel message spread all over the Roman Empire. It's now uh, the largest religion in the world still today, Christianity is. What was the difference? Is that Jesus actually is the Messiah. The one who actually can bring us back to God. And to do it, he conquered sin and the grave. And the women are confronted with this fact in a startling way. Jesus was dead, but now he is raised. Death was defeated. Now what are they supposed to do? What's the plan? Thankfully, God tells them and tells us. God tells the woman exactly how to respond to their raised Savior. And it's something that we never could have guessed. It's more beautiful than we could have imagined. It's too good and too gracious. Now that Jesus has been raised, what message does he give uh, to these women through the angel? Well, we read it together in verse 7. Jesus says through the angel, Go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Imagine that. Imagine for a second what Jesus could have said. Jesus could have said, you foolish woman. You didn't believe that I'd rise on the third day like I said I would. Why would you doubt me? How dare you doubt me? And what could Jesus have said to the disciples? He could have rebuked them. He could have rebuked them for their lack of faith, for their failure to listen, their failure to believe. Even more than that, the disciples... He could have rebuked them for their cowardice. The disciples who lived with him, who he trained, they gave up on Jesus so fast. In the garden, Jesus was at the point of being overwhelmed with sorrow, and they couldn't even stay awake. When Jesus was arrested by his enemies, his disciples fled. Now on the third day, they're still hiding, nowhere to be found. Well, at least these women mustered up the courage and affection to come pay their final respects. Jesus could have rebuked them. Or alternatively, he could have just said nothing to them. He could have just left them. They had left Jesus, and if they didn't come for Jesus, that's on them. Jesus could have chosen new people, others to lead his church. They gave up on him, so Jesus could have given up on them. But our gracious Savior, he doesn't do that. He just died for sin and unbelief. He's the great victorious king over sin and death. And he's as gracious and patient and loving and kind as ever. His disciples had abandoned him. But Jesus doesn't abandon them. They didn't come to see him. Jesus sends for them. And look who he sends for specifically. He tells the woman, go tell the disciples and Peter. What compassion. You could imagine, even if the woman went to get the disciples and say, the Lord is alive, he wants to see you, he wants to forgive you, he wants to recruit you, 
Peter might have thought, that's amazing. Jesus is so kind. He's so good. He's so gracious. It's wonderful that he's willing to forgive you. But there's no way he's willing to forgive me. There's no way he's talking about me. All of the disciples had failed. But Peter had failed by far the worst. He had boasted the most, saying he'd never fall away, even if everyone else did. And then he fell away the hardest. When Jesus in Gethsemane came and found his disciples sleeping instead of praying, he spoke to Peter in particular and said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then Peter fell asleep again. Then Jesus was taken away to be put on trial, to be beaten and mocked and spit on. And before the rooster crowed twice, Peter denied him three times. The third time we read in Mark, Peter invoked a curse and he swore that he did not know Jesus, that he had nothing to do with him. And right then the Lord turned and looked in his face. What good news for people like us in this story. People who are weak like Peter. People who fail and fall short all the time. People who, if we're being honest, we look in our lives and we feel like we failed Jesus over and over. We didn't stick up for him. We didn't defend him. We didn't live for him as we should have. Well, here Jesus crushes all doubt. He says, tell my disciples and Peter. I want to see them. I want to forgive them. I I want to restore them. Remember, remember what would happen after this. Peter would become one of the most important leaders in the early church. If you look at the beginning of Acts, it's, it's all Peter. God would use this weak, frail man, partly because Peter came to know his weakness. He knew his own sin, and he knew, as a result of that, Jesus Christ's awesome grace. Peter knew how unworthy he was. And he knew how great and awesome and kind and worthy Christ is. So often, God loves to use weak people like Peter. That's good news for weak people like us, isn't it? God loves to use people who know their sin, know their unworthiness, know their shame, and who know that Christ is so good and so gracious and so kind. God tells us that his power is made perfect in weakness. And often we can see that the best parents and the best teachers and the best office bearers and the best kids and the best everyone else, they're the one who know how weak they are, how sinful they are, how undeserving they are of any more grace. And yet they have a huge sense of Christ's gracious forgiveness, that he died for them and paid for them and forgave them and has recruited and can use even them. Tim Keller explains the good news of Easter for weak, sinful people like Peter and like us, in this way. Tim Keller says, imagine Easter Sunday a little something like this. Imagine a prisoner was sentenced for jail, to jail for a crime. He goes to jail, and eventually, he completes the whole sentence. He satisfies the whole punishment, and the law has no more claim on him at all. It's done. And so, the prisoner walks out a free man. This is exactly what Christ did on that first Easter Sunday. Jesus came to pay the huge, immense penalty for your sins and mine. He took the whole debt 
on himself, the whole suffering, the whole punishment of God's heavy wrath completely on himself. And now, Easter Sunday, he walks out a free man. And as he walks out, you and me and all who believe in him, by God's grace, we walk out free men and free women too. No matter how weak or how sinful or wretched, because it's not because of what we did. It's because of what Christ did. There is no condemnation left for those in Christ Jesus. The cup of God's heavy wrath was drank in full. We once were dead, but now we're alive with Christ. Even for the disciples, even for Peter, even for you and me. The good news is true. Finally, there is a Savior. There is the Savior. The one who is able to bring sinners from death and judgment into life. Abundant new life. Merciful new life. To live with God now and forever. We have this Savior who is so kind and so willing. What a Savior we worship on Easter Sunday. It's important to remember what I've mentioned before in this series. Mark is the one who writes the book of Mark. But nearly everyone agrees, even church history says, that someone else was the one telling it. I wonder if you remember. Nearly everyone agrees that Peter was the source. He was the eyewitness Mark was drawing from. Throughout the book, Peter recounts his weakness and failure in great detail and minimizes uh, his acts of faith. And here I have to imagine he writes this part, or he mentions this part with tears in his eyes, recounting the Lord's grace. Jesus is risen, now what? Now go and get my disciples and Peter. I have work for them to do. doesn't mention their sin or their cowardice. He calls them back to himself and equips them to get to work. And so our final point, Jesus is alive. Now what? We see at the end of this text uh, what the women were told to do. And then we also see what they actually do. At the end of our section, and like we said earlier, uh, perhaps the end of the book altogether, Mark says in verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What a shocking, what a, a sudden ending to the book. But we've been in Mark for a little while, and you might have come to know that this is sort of Mark's style, isn't it? If you remember how the very beginning of the book started, uh, Mark started with a bang, didn't he? Uh, in verse 4, just at the beginning uh, of the book, uh, Mark says, literally, that John the Baptist appeared. Appeared baptizing. Suddenly he was there. Likewise, you might remember, there's no account of uh, the conception or the birth of Christ, no account of Jesus uh, growing up. Just suddenly he bursts onto the scene and is baptized. No birth story, nothing like that. And then Mark continues going already in the first chapter. He says, Immediately after he was baptized, Jesus saw the heavens torn open. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Immediately the disciples left their nets to follow him, and so on. Mark goes quickly, and he starts running through the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And as he goes through this gospel very quickly, the big questions he's driving home are, first of all, who is this Jesus and secondly, how will you respond to him? Who is Jesus? How will you respond to him? And Mark's point is clear. 
Everyone who meets Jesus in the flesh or through these words, everyone needs to answer these questions. Who is he and how will I respond to him? Will I ignore him? Will I oppose him? Will I forget about him? Or will I bow down and worship him as the God-given Savior, the Son of God, the Messiah? And one emotion marks the decision points throughout the book. You might have noticed this as we went through the stories. The emotion of fear. In Mark 4, Jesus calms the storm, remember? And his disciples, like these women, how did they respond? They were terrified. They needed, to decide, they needed to decide what they were going to do with this Savior, more powerful than a great storm, and how they were going to respond to him. And then in Mark chapter 5, Jesus heals a man with a legion of demons. Remember that? After he did, how did the townspeople who came from all around, how did they respond? They were very afraid. They needed to respond. They needed to decide who this Jesus was and what they were going to do with him. And you remember the sad truth, what they did. They begged Jesus to leave them alone. Next, a story that we didn't read, but a a sick woman uh, touched the edge of Jesus' garment. And we read that afterwards, she too is afraid. Jesus calls to her, she falls down before him, but she believed in him. And Jesus commends her faith. After that, another story, familiar, but we didn't read it. Jesus cleansed the temple. He flipped over the tables. He made a whip and drive out the, drove out the moneylenders. And the chiefs and the priests, or the chief priests and the scribes, were told, were afraid. They knew that they had to react to this man claiming to be the Messiah. You can't ignore someone who shows up and says he's from God and the one who can bring you back. And so, what did the chief priests and scribes do? We're told they began to seek a way to destroy him. There are all these examples and many more if you read through the book of Mark. Mark has made it clear. Being confronted with Jesus and his teaching and his power, it demands a response. People are shocked and startled by the truth, and then they need to decide, now what? Now what? How am I going to respond? And typically, Mark outlines the responses of others. But here at the end of this section, perhaps even the end of the book, he Uh, On Easter Sunday, at the empty tomb, he leaves us at a cliffhanger. And that's because he wants you to decide. He wants you to answer the question now. He's laid out all the facts. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He came with immense authority. He came from God himself. He came for one reason. To save sinners. To bring us back to God. To bring God glory. He was crucified to save sinners. And he was raised so that in him we might have life. In him we might walk free from the condemnation we deserve. That's what we see today and every single day. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. It's all been paid for. It's all done. So I ask each and every one of you honestly, today and every day again, now what? Now what? How are you going to respond to Jesus' death and resurrection today? Jesus is alive. He's ruling as our king. He's in heaven as our high priest. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Are we going to listen to this Jesus? Are we going to trust him more than we even trust ourselves? Are we going to fall down on our knees and worship this Jesus? The one who loved you and died for you. 
walked through death and out the other side and came and got you? Are we going to worship him and follow him? Or are we going to ignore him, hate him, oppose him, drive him away? This is where Mark leaves the story with these women terrified. But of course, we know what happened after that. Mark's original audience, they would have known too. They know that these women didn't stay afraid. He knows that they eventually were overfilled with joy, we read in the other Gospels. And with joy, they went and told the disciples and they told others about their awesome risen Savior. Of course they did. They weren't afraid of the ramifications anymore. They didn't care if others believed them. They knew what they saw. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And Mark, we see here, he does something that he hasn't done much throughout the rest of Mark. He repeats these three women, uh, their names. He repeats uh, their names three times, only with one omission. And the reason most people agree is because the people he was writing to, they would have recognized these names. There are other women who went to the tomb that day too. But they would have known these people. And so Paul is inviting, or sorry, Mark is inviting them to go and talk to these women and see if they share their story, and they will. And he is inviting them to consider these women. Consider their faith. Consider the fact that they didn't stay in fear. They moved on to devotion for Jesus Christ, living their life for him. Likewise, think of the disciples afterwards. They were told of the good news. They doubted at first, but they moved on, and they gave their entire life to serving this risen Christ. Because Jesus being raised from the dead changes everything. We can end with just one more quick example. Think of the Apostle Paul, or Saul, as he was known before. Saul was convinced that Jesus was dead. Someone stole his body or something, but he was a false messiah. Paul was con uh, convinced that he was right before God because of his own works. But then one day, what happened? The resurrection Christ met with him, revealed himself to him. And for Paul, that changed everything. He couldn't be the same. He couldn't live the same. He recognized he was dead in his own sins, but he was alive in Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. The resurrected Christ changes everything. These women believed. The disciples believed. Paul believed. They went and told everyone. And now Mark is challenging his readers you too believe. Don't stay scared. Remember, they were going through intense persecution at the time. Don't stay scared. Don't stay complacent. Receive the shocking news with joy. Death has been defeated. Your sin has been thrown into the ocean. Jesus is reigning powerfully for you and even inside of you, and he'll be back soon to wipe every tear from your eyes. Brothers and sisters, this is the truth about Easter. Your sins were paid for in full by Christ on that cross, and he walked out the other side. You're alive with him, free from sin and guilt, you and all who believe in him. He conquered sin and Satan, disease, sickness, the grave, and nothing can harm us now. We're here for a little while longer, but he's coming back soon, and this should change everything. So as we make our plans tomorrow or the next day, the rest of the year, plans that can be changed so unexpectedly, brothers and sisters, let's remember that tomb is empty. Jesus, who has died, is alive again, reigning over you and for you. Tomorrow, today, the next day, let's ask ourselves, Jesus is alive, and us with him. Now what? Let's sing together in response about Jesus' awesome resurrection in hymn 34. <laughs>